All right, I've been waiting all day because I knew what I was going to ask. Okay. Have you tried Spotify's new AI DJ? No. It's the coolest fucking thing. So his name is X. Okay. He's cool. He's chill. But he uses your listening history to make you like custom little sets. So he'll oh, be that's like, cute. Uh, like the today he said, I've noticed that pop music's really your thing. Well, here's some tunes you might like and just played some stuff I never heard before. That was really cool. But then other times he'll just totally throw you under the bus and be like, <laughs> here's some of your top songs you listened to in 2017. And it's all just deep cuts from the Mean Girls on Broadway soundtracks. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's funny. It's it's really cool. I'll do you one better. H- have you seen that people are using AI to replicate Donald Trump, Joe Biden, and Obama's voice and then have them do a gaming tier list? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so there's this video. Uh, I have watched it three times. I will be showing you part of it during the interlude because it's kind of long. And basically, it's Obama with a tier list ranking all the Zelda games. And it is just so fucking funny. AI, man. It's the best. That is AI for good. Those those are two examples. I have seen people on Twitter using AI to deep fake unreleased Taylor Swift songs that uh, don't yeah. actually exist. Like these songs are just AI generated monstrosities. So yeah, the robots are definitely taking over. But the DJ on Spotify is cool. <laughs> The, the transition of that sentence he's only available for uh premium users right now but i'm gonna have to look and up. it's in beta but you gotta test it out if it's really confusing to find so if you're on spotify on your app you gotta hit the music tab and okay. it'll be at the top this took me three days to figure out because okay. i didn't know there are multiple tabs on the home page in the app but uh yeah go i'm gonna look it up go hang out with x he's in the morning when i get home I like throw on music when I'm in the shower, but mm-hmm. I never know what to listen to. Mm-hmm. X chooses for That's me. That's a good idea because I find myself like choosing an artist of like similar songs, and then I start a radio. Yeah, like I did one for like what was it? Dayseeker, because that was a song I just found their song without me, and I was like, oh yeah, this is my vibe. Did a whole yeah. radio for it, but then it just plays like the same things yeah, over and over again. It does get really. I will say now that I've used X for a couple of days. Um, some of the sets that it'll play are very similar. Yeah. Like it'll just go, it's tried to play me a set by Ava Max twice today. Yeah. Um, but it is in beta, so I will forgive him. But, uh, I was gonna make a point. Oh, he'll play like five songs in that particular set and then he'll come in kind of like a radio DJ and be like, mm-hmm. all right, now that was, that was Taylor Swift closing out the set. Next up, we've got some tunes that our editors might think you're going to enjoy and then it'll go into a oh, new that's set. Cute. So it changes themes every five or four or five songs. That's adorable. I have to say, I'm not doing the algorithm any favors because I've been listening to Bad Omens and Sleep Token like nonstop. Like the two of them back to back. It might just throw you some uh, Mean Girls deep cuts from 2017. <laughs> It's going to listen and it's like, <laughs> how about some Christian music for your damn soul? It, it did hit me the other day with, uh, let's take it back to some music that you might have enjoyed in your younger days and just started playing Paramore. And oh, I was fuck like, you. ouch. <coughs> I'm choking on fuck air you, over fuck here. Fuck you, AI. Anyway, I'm Leah. I'm Bethan. And this is She Will Rock You. Where are they getting a dub in a CBS executive meeting? No. Bitch, don't touch my thermostat. <laughs> the ghost be like, hold up, before I haunt you, let me turn down the thermostat. This is bad. We're on page one, guys. <laughs> this is Shiwaraki. Hold on. Got some moonshine in a cup. I know I'm drinking today. I'm not. I haven't drank in a very long time until up to this weekend. I went to D.C. and Baltimore. Um with some friends and uh our friend our mutual friend shane his girlfriend is kind of in between the two so like we were crashing our bed and i went to total wine which is a store around the dmv area and this guy was selling you know he has a family distillery that sells moonshine which is just the cutest thing to me for some reason because it's like i see family distilleries for like whiskey or for wine i haven't seen one for moonshine probably because it wasn't legal for a very long time i could do it 
It was probably there's it's probably always been a family distillery, but a hundred percent up until the recent. So he gave me a little shot. It's like peach cobbler has actual peaches in it. Took a sip of it. And I was like, oh, damn, that's good. And I was kind of going around the store and I kept thinking about it. I was like, you know what? I'm going to buy myself a mason jar of it because that's what it came in. And I went up to the guy and I said, if you give me another shot, I'm in. I'll buy it. He poured me the biggest fucking shot. Let me tell you. And I was walking around that store. Vibing. Vibing very well. Very well. And also White Claw makes a vodka. Leah was hearing about it all the time as I was drinking it. Very good. Can recommend. I will say that uh, real moonshine comes from a dude named Keith in the woods, but, you know, <laughs> fancy DC moonshine is, is an okay substitute. I, I wish I could remember their name. Oh, Rosy Cheeks? Yeah, that's what it said. Rosy Cheeks. And it has, I can't wait to get to the peaches. I'm very excited that's to get the to the re- moonshine peaches. That's the peaches. reward at the bottom. That's exactly right. I'm it's waiting. like a reward. I'll be bringing, it's like a reward. <laughs> I'm going to bring it to your, like I was telling you, your birthday party and I'll be making kind of moonshine drink for those you those peaches alone are a shot so like yeah dude you don't get the peach i'll tell you what there's three peaches i will give you one of the peaches that for is my birthday. birthday present okay yes that just that just the peach but anyway this has been a long long time coming. three and a half th- almost four years we have been talking about these two episodes forever forever and the day is here it's 2023 i turned 30 in she two turns weeks. Third. This is really a birthday present to Leah. It really is. We've had this on the calendar to talk about my next artist of the show uh, since October. Yeah. So yeah, we actually planned this one, guys. Yes. And I'm not kidding. Like writing this was like a Pixar movie for of like me <laughs> <laughs> with Easter eggs in there, and I was like, ah. So I'll be doing some virtual tippy tappies while like talking about this because it just made me like so excited uh for no fucking reason it just made me excited um of course there's gonna be a trigger warning because (laughs) it's an emo band so you know drugs alcohol suicide if tumblr talked about it we're talking about it so there's your warning um once again big shout out to sellout by dan ozzy which i will be referencing this book quite a bit and reading sections from it. Um, very good book. I'm going to consult and the glossary while you do that. I literally am so glad that I have this book because when I was doing my research, Wiki surprisingly didn't have a lot of meat. It was very, very, very outline based. So this guy has interviewed so many people knowing the bands and the members itself. Like he, you're getting it straight from the source. I'm straight from the source. That uh, next band is not in here. Yeah, I am surprised by that, too. That's why it was so fucking hard to research. Anyway. Yeah. Well, he covers the hardcore scene, but unfortunately, some people write off that band, which is a shame. Anyway, um, so let's get into the band's beginnings. And like I said earlier, there's not a lot on Wiki, and there's not a lot about their beginnings. So it's going to be pretty short. But we got to start off with my boy, Gerard Way. He was born April 9th, 1977 in Summit, New Jersey. 1977? He's 45 years old. He's 45 years old? I have been thinking about this fact while I've been writing this whole fucking outline. Why did I think he was like 35? I thought he was not that much older than us. I I know. Like literally I have, I had a nostalgia panic attack about it recently. That man was 45 just flat on the stage like that? Yeah, correct. (laughs) He still looks... Like he's he 25. He's like 23. Yeah. Anyway, um, he and his brother Mikey were raised in Belleville, New Jersey. Blah, blah, blah. He and his brother Mikey was raised. <laughs> he and his. Shut up. This is what happens when you drink moonshine. <laughs> I, I took one goddamn sip. He and his brother Mikey were raised in Belleville, New Jersey. From a young age, his grandmother always encouraged him to the arts and helped him learn to like do music, paint, all things art. She is a big like influence on this, on the, the way brothers, if you will. Growing up, he would listen to glam metal, which is not really a shock, um, including <laughs> bands like Bon Jovi and Queen. He also liked the Misfits, Iron Maiden. Him and his brother really loved Britpop, like the Blur, uh, the Blur, the Blur. Fuck me, man. Blur. I'm not drinking the rest of that. <laughs> not until I start my episode. <laughs> then I'll start. But at 15, he was held at gunpoint. What the fuck? Which Wiki gives me no information about why. It was New Jersey. 
It was New Jersey. That is the only reason I can think of. Everything is legal in New Jersey. That's correct. Except left-hand turns. Um, But growing up in school, he was the nerdy kid. When it came to teasing, and I'm very sorry to report this, but they called him the Campbell Soup Kid. And I can kind of see where they're going with that. Because have you seen the Campbell Soup Kids? They got the little cheeks. The the rosy cheeks. The rosy cheeks. And I'm like, you know, unfortunately, I can see (laughs) it. Unfortunately, they are right. Uh, um, When he graduated high school in 1995, he went to school and earned a BFA in 1999. But let's hop over to, hey, Mikey. That's the only way I can think to say his name. (laughs) Um, He's the younger brother of Gerard Way. He was born September 10th, 1980. Not much about him either, other than his first concert was Smashing Pumpkins. They went to with his brother. And after seeing them, Mikey said to Gerard, we got to do this. That makes sense. It's real cute. So I know we're like barely talking about the Way Brothers, but calm your Tumblr tits. (laughs) We'll get there. Um, We got to talk about Frank Iero. Eero? I always read it as Eero. I, don't I always know read it as Eero. Right. Um, he was born on Halloween in 1981 in Belleville, which is very suiting for the band. His parents split when he was young. He lives with his mom, who allowed her basement to be transformed into a practice studio. His dad was a musician and first taught him drums, but Frank would soon pick up guitar. Lastly, let's talk about Ray Toro. He was born on July 5th, 1977 in Kearney, New Jersey. Surprisingly, there isn't a lot about him. Um, Again, not a lot about them. He grew up in Jersey, and it wasn't until high school that he became interested in music. Um, From there, he joined a couple different bands, including the Rodneys, which featured future MCR drummer. But when it came time to choose a major in college, he actually chose film. And in an interview about said film schooling, he said, quote, I made one short film about a guy who was obsessed with eating eggs every day. Ew. He finally opens up this egg carton and there's only one left, but he can't crack it open. So it drives him insane. Okay. <laughs> hey, I'm all about it. That's some artsy shit. Um, we're also kind of skipping not talking about any of the drummers, mainly because there's just one, not a lot about them, but two, there's just, they're kind of just there. They're not really identified really much throughout their career with the band. Like there's one we'll talk about. He's only in for like like four years, but he doesn't do much or anything. So I'm going to kind of just touch on them when they show up. But let's get into how this all started. So after college, Gerard Way had become an intern for Cartoon Network. Uh, prior to that, That's so random. <laughs> prior to that, he was doing smaller gigs at DC Comics and Marvel one of which included designing action figures, which is really fucking cool. But when he was at Cartoon Network, he came very close to a pitch getting greenlit called The Breakfast Monkey. Uh, The morning of September 11th, he was commuting to the city. Um, Of course, it's in 2001. That's right. There's a uh, a 9-11 to MCR pipeline. There is. Um, He saw the Twin Towers go up in smoke. He was in the Hoboken station, which is the station I go to when I go to the city. And he was watching and like people were crying and screaming around him. And it was that moment he basically said, fuck art and realized he wanted to change the world. Like, that's it. That's all that did it for him. And he realized that music was that source of goodness. He also wanted to. um, he, He said in an interview later, like music is actually something I've always secretly wanted to do. But the guy is like hella shy. It may not yes. seem like on stage, but no, he he's hella, definitely shy. Hella shy. Um, so he picks up a guitar and writes a song about processing what he saw in 9-11 called Skylines and Turnstiles. This is on their first album, which we'll talk about. It was during that time that Gerard realized he could not sing and play guitar at the same time. So he same. reached out to friend and master shredder Ray Toro. He showed him the song he was working on. And Ray's eyes like started lighting up and he's like, oh, I could do this. I can do this. And this and just started like just going with it. With Ray came drummer Matt Pellissier, who they called Otter. Um, he didn't last very long, mainly because he was really sloppy with his work and they kind of just like would kick him out later on. But anyway, like from there, Gerard started securing the bass guitarist to which he turned to his younger brother, Mikey. 
Now, I cannot explain why such trends occur in BAM formations, but at the time of asking, Mikey could not play bass. No one can ever play bass. <laughs> but when Gerard came to him, he said, okay, I learned bass in a week. Hey. He did it. He Clearly, d- it worked out for him. He so. did it. Um, as far as for the title, if you're wondering like where the band name comes from, um, Mikey used to work at Barnes & Noble, and there was a book <laughs> called Ecstasy, Three Tales of Chemical Romance, which I looked up this book. It's like three novellas. It's just the weirdest erotic story shit. I was like, what is the fucking plot? It's like a sexually confused nurse and all this kind of stuff. I was like, all right. It spoke to him. All right. Well, he, he you know, he might be a pretty creative guy. You'll see. Um, there's also one other person in the background that the band recruits that needs to be mentioned because she has a big influence on this band. Her name is Sarah Lewidin, and she becomes the band's first manager in like the most cutest way. So going back three years to when Sarah was on American o- Online, a.k.a. AOL, her screen name was Ultra Girl, spelt G-R-R-L. Girl. Girl. Um, there she got to meet other music fans by searching like directories for bands like Blur and Radiohead. It was there another screen name would appear, Mikey Raygun. They immediately started talking for months Mikey is this like super looks like a super outgoing guy and and eventually they agreed to meet up in the city. Um, he told he told us he said the others said he looked like Leonardo DiCaprio and then proceeded to send a very blurry photo of him to prove <laughs> it. The man does not look like anywhere no, near Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, but that's all she had to go off of. Um, they met. They began dating shortly after. And according to the book, they started making out on every corner in New York City. You gotta leave your mark. Yeah. But Sarah thought like Mikey was way different from his online personality than his regular, just from like a shyness level. That's really what it was. Like he's way more outgoing on AOL, but the person she met was more shyer. So she called it off, but they remained very good friends. Um, She heard from him on and off for a few years until one day he sends songs for his new band he's in. She listened to it, knew they were going to be great and begged to be the band's manager. Hey. they all agreed to do. From there, she started reading a book called All You Need to Know About the Music Business right before her first day as manager, which her mom drove her to, which she'll come in handy later. The band's first show was October 2001. So, mind you, they started right after September Yeah, 11th. that is a month. Yeah. They did it at an Elks Lodge <laughs> in Jersey. That's amazing. Now... This is important. This is the most important thing I'm going to say in this whole fucking outline. I don't know how you did in other parts of the country, but if your first shows wasn't in a lodge or a VFW building, get the fuck out of here because that is not a show. All my shows, all my shows for the most part, local shows, we're in a VFW. I don't know what a VFW <laughs> is. Elf's lodge. It's for veterans. Okay. But yeah, that, that, that that's, that's what you do. All right. That, that's how we do it up in... The New York, Jersey area, okay? Um, Considering we have neither of those here? (laughs) Yes. Dude, that's all there is. It's just old Elks Lodges and VFWs, and they rent them out for 20 bucks. And you don't have a stage. You just have a floor, so you're pacing the floor with other people just standing there. It's it's magic. It's where magic is born, all right? What the fuck is up, Elks Home? (laughs) Elks Lodge. (laughs) So at the show... Uh, Mike Hem was opening for a band called Pensy Prep, which Frank Iero was a part of. Mm. Once Frank heard MCR, like he, like all of us at one point, he was just done and obsessed. Like this is his band now. And he was like their biggest and first fan. They would eventually ask him to join the band, which it pained him to leave his current band because he was the lead singer and main guitarist. But like, how can you throw that opportunity away? To be you with only your get one band. shot, one opportunity. That's it. <laughs> Recording num num song. Yes. Oh fuck! It took me a second. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to back up a little bit to just a few months to go to a very small label called Eyeball Records that's in Kearney, New Jersey. That's a great record label. It man. is a very good name. Uh, the label had this house, which was like the base of operations. And also a place where sleepy tour musicians can like crash if they'd like. Or the occasional intern who didn't want to sleep on their parents' couch. Well, that intern was Mikey Way. 
And <laughs> at Eyeball Records, um, one of their bands started to create buzz. That was the band Thursday. Do you know Thursday? No. They're, they were definitely... What the fuck? Ghosts. Oh, it was my dishwasher. Is what it is. They were definitely part of the emo 2000s, but I knew of them. Not of them. I knew their songs, but they didn't really get to the level of the others. They still stayed at a consistent a regional emo level. level. No, they were national, but I never they didn't really break through like the other ones did. But they are very good. Um, so, in fact, lead singer was very, very instrumental to helping usher my chem along its path. Um, also, so Thursday has this logo that's a dove. For those who know, know what I'm talking about. That was drawn by Gerard Way. It's crazy how much Gerard Way has done and has influenced. Like, did you know he drew like Penny Parker for the Marvel Spider-Man no. series? You know, in like Spider-Verse, Penny yeah. and the Robot. That was Ger- Gerard Way co-created that character he's got a lot of side quests going on he really does and he's successful at all of them too but anyway uh one day there is this house party at eyeball house eyeball house (laughs) and here comes mikey way cornering jeff to talk to him about his new band and during this frantic talking which by the way he's shy up until he has some cranberry vodkas the books makes that very clear same mikey goes Yo, we just wrote a song called Vampires Will Never Hurt You. And he just basically yanks a guitar from the wall and it's out of tune and missing some strings. Doesn't matter. Um, Keep in mind, he is just learning bass. Yes. (laughs) That's where the missing strings come in handy. Exactly. So he starts playing it and then he realizes he can't play it. (laughs) (laughs) So he goes... Hey Gerard, come over here and play this. And Gerard like shuffles in. He's he's probably like, God damn it, Mikey, like under his breath. And he's just nervously playing the song and, you know, attempts to sing it. And it wasn't like the best impression because you're nervous. You're not expecting it to happen. Well, fast forward. Mikey finds Jeff again as he's loading his van for touring and he rushes over and gives him his demo. And he said, I would be honored if you produce our band's like first album. So Jeff kindly accepts gets in the van and is pretty much like, fuck, now I got to listen to this. <laughs> and luckily he was way more impressed, listened to the song like three times straight and then leads to him agreeing to do their first album. So up to this point, as a reminder, this band has only been together for like three or four months up to this mm-hmm. point as they're getting ready to do an album, not an EP and a full album. Um, so they go into the studio, record their first album. I brought you my bullets. You brought me your love. And it's recorded in a studio called Nada Studios. Nada, Nada. Nada. This is where I do my first tippy tap Easter egg. Because this studio is located in upstate New York. As you know, I am an obsessed New Yorker and I have to know where it is. Nada Studios at the time was located in New Windsor, New York, which is where I worked during the summers nice and now they are in montgomery new york where i did my first piano recital (laughs) and vocal recital um so during the recording of the album gerard was complaining about a pain in his head that was severe he went to the er and they're basically like sorry sad emo boy there's nothing we can do and their manager sarah she's new she had just read a book goes to her mom it's like what do i do well mom drags gerard to the hospital and goes fix him you fix him now he's recording an album like she fucking (laughs) got it done and sure enough they bring him in and he needed an emergency root canal oh and of course as i do i nailed down to the hospitals they probably went to both of which my mom worked at hey and she was probably working in the same area it was she, like ER by that she point. She might have seen Gerard. I'm telling you, I was so tempted to ask her, but because of HIPAA, damn it, I couldn't find out. But I would ask the HIPAA get repealed for this one moment, please. Does HIPAA have an expiration? Like, yeah, is there a, a statute of limitations on HIPAA? Th- that's a great question. Uh, but it is an answer. Even if I asked her, she's like... She, she's not going to know. She ain't going to know. But if I could just maybe describe... This, do you remember, Mom, do you remember a lady coming in dragging a young... Uh, frazzled young boy and she's like fix him is it, is it do you ring any bells? Ring any bells anyway um 
when Gerard was back in the studio with some new pain pills in hand, his singing reportedly didn't possess the emotional flair it usually does. And I think he probably because he was stoned. Oh, no kidding. Uh, maybe the root canal has something to do with it. But I think also he was just kind of scared throughout the whole singing of the album. Once again, only being in a band for three months will do that. <laughs> have to no him. experience. This moment changed of him like being flat and not having emotional flair to bring into uh, high gear when eyeball record owner Alex Saavedra um, took his pills and said, you don't get any more until you finish recording. That's mean. It is mean. Wait until you hear what else he does. That doesn't work. So he punches him in the face. Oh, at least I thought you were going to say punch him in the balls. No, first. in the so, face. Because think about it. What the fuck? He had a root canal. The fuck? He said it worked because Gerard Way is kind of ma- masochist. Masochist. Thank you. Masochist. So it motivated him to do it. I would be so I would walk out. No, it worked. No, nope. it's what got him in gear. Um. So when the album was released on July 23rd, 2002, the band had an album release party back in Jersey. I have to talk about this, of course. On the CD disc, it read, unauthorized duplication is a violation of applicable laws, which was on all the CDs. And then it said, and will result in Gerard coming to your house and sucking your blood. This is cute. Um, so at first, when the album was released, it experienced like quite a bit of local success. Their hit Vampires played on local stations. And within two months, they sold 2,000 copies of the album, which is really good for local. I just remembered his oh. shirt, this tour that said Pool Boy at the Vampire Mansion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is where it all started. Yeah. Um, but due to Sarah's hustling, record labels were already like had the band in their purview. Also worth noting, and we'll talk more about this, like the band is internet based, meaning they were already on the forums. They already were getting their name out. They're on MySpace. They're on MySpace. And MySpace is going to play a big, big role in this band. But anyway, she took it to zero to 60 and Sarah was let go because she grew the band too fast. That the band was like, we love you, but we're not ready for this level of success. So they let her go. But she was still continued to be very good friends with the band. I mean, they're like 2021, you know, Mm -hmm. those things kind of happen. The band starts touring in 2002 and the following year, the way grandparents buy the boys a used rundown van so they can tour in. Yeah, they're really cute. Uh, So they begin the circuit across uh, the U.S. and Canada. One of the first bands they tour with is under oath my my boy boys i just saw under oath last friday for those who know if you've listened to the show under oath is my favorite band i love them sincerely so much but anyway um i have to turn to this quote this is the first quote from the book about touring with under oath and it is just like i read this and then i reread it again and i just kept laughing by how good it was their first tour saw them opening for a poppy emo band out of Alabama called North Star. After that, they supported Christian metalcore act Under Oath. That, quote, that was huge for us because they were really seasoned, said Eero. Quote, they knew what they were doing and were super nice to us. Being Christian, they really looked out for us. We had no clothes and they gave us their t-shirts. One of the guys who managed them told us, if you call venues ahead of time, you can get chips and salsa. And we were like, chips and salsa? Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> so we called everybody and asked for chips and salsa. We found out later that if you're a little bigger, you can ask for peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> <laughs> but even though Under Oath isn't a Christian band anymore, I just think that's so cute. And chips as a fan, and as a fan you definitely see how much they actually care about their fans. Cause on the show on Friday, they'd be pausing. Like they're really heavy. Like they're screaming and things like that. And then Spencer Lee Singer would be like, you guys, okay. You need any water. And he's like, turns to Chris. Who's the synth guy. He's like, his bar tabs open. You guys can get a drink. Like Aww. he was so, I love him so much. Anyway, that's my little geek moment. So these were the shows that grew them grew their fan base and they were just playing any type of rock and it's partly because they didn't fit a genre like and they used it to their advantage really i mean as we know they're gonna birth the emo rock generation so to speak even though they don't like that term 
Um, but because of this, the fan base was very eclectic and very passionate, mainly because Gerard embraced, as he says, fucking weirdo self. But that authenticity is what drew people in. It wasn't a crowd of like tough hardcore kids or two cool punk kids, but rather a group of teenagers that were different and embraced it. So in 2002, Gerard was already saying from the stage, if you're racist, if you're sexist, if you're homophobic, get the fuck out of the audience. We don't want you here. Bye. Yeah. I mean, to think about it, that's really huge for bands to yeah. do that so boldly in 2002. Today... Yeah, fuck yeah, you say that. You, but you better, in 2002? Yeah, 2002, man. Like, there are some dudes that are going to get real up in arms about it because they just secretly are racist, sexist, and homophobic. But yeah, anyway. Um, so it's cool to see those seeds of change. Another game changer, Mike Hem was really good about making sure women felt accepted in the crowd. Hell yeah. Yeah, which if you have watched the Woodstock 99 documentary, you know was not the case was not the case there was a lot of bad things that happened there for women um but an example of this of how they were accepted like if a girl was moshing in the crowd gerard would cheer her on from stage and celebrate her for not being afraid so it really brought women into the forefront and like they didn't feel like they had to hide or just be there behind their boyfriend for the show like they were a part of it unless you were racist sexist homophobic then you weren't allowed get the fuck out uh, but because of this, uh, it was not re- well received, like I said, for everyone, because dudes who uh, in 2002 wear tap out shirts get challenged. And, and their and uh, stupid ass baggy jeans. Yeah. So there's like, what would fuck, man? So let me read you this of the stuff they faced at the very beginning. Um, they would call us the F word, which I'm not going to say and stuff like that. Gerard told the magazine Big Cheese. We were being discriminated against from early on. The minute you open your mouth to stand up for yourself or say something different from what everyone else is saying, people will start hating you. You pose as a threat to them. People don't like it. And this band is very threatening thing to a lot of people. And that's the beauty of it. Gerard thrived on that shit, says Wit. If a dude was calling him a slur, he'd say, that's all right. I'm meeting up with your girlfriend in the parking lot later. Or come on, dude, let's have a dance contest. Or you want to kiss me? Come up here and give me a kiss. He would egg those dudes on. Sometimes the singer would provoke a hostile crowd by strutting over to Euro and giving him a big wet kiss. Are we shocked? No. No, not at all. Um, So now between those albums for... We go from the first into the second, if you will. Uh, The band is being courted by big record labels, two of which stick out are DreamWorks, which I didn't know had a record label. Me neither. And Warner Brothers. But the AR reps knew that the band didn't like normal rock band shit. So like no strip clubs. So they were just like, well, what the fuck did we do? They heard the band wasn't impressed by big to do's. So they took them to Denny's. What the fuck's up, Denny's? (laughs) I mean, all they need to do is get us some peanut butter and jelly. Dude, so been literally, happy. literally, this is an origin story in the making. Peanut butter and jelly. Um, they ended up going with Reprise under Warner Brothers and got started on the album. Let's start talking about the album I've been waiting for. So I have a very distinct memory of being in seventh grade on the bus with my jewel iPod shuffle, the little white grade. stick. And I would click through until I reached a song from this album <laughs> or I would flip it and, you know, do it the correct That's way. That's right. The little ones didn't have a screen. Yeah, they didn't have a screen. Um, but I cannot begin to describe to you how much I love this album. I was telling Josh, it's one of three albums that would set up my music taste for the rest of my life. Um, so let's talk about why this album is so great. First off the bat, they're working with a new producer. His name's Howard Benson, and he worked with P.O.D., Crazy Town, Motorhead, and Ice-T's band Body Count, which is, I think, a really good mix that Mm -hmm. they kind of brought in. Second, there's some really awesome guest spots on this album. Burt McCracken from The Used, not to be confused with Burt Macklin from the FBI. Yes. Very important distinction. And Black Fag... Shit. Black Flag... (laughs) (laughs) yes here i am talking about discrimination here (laughs) you gotta leave that in unfortunately i'm leaving that joke in 
but I feel very bad about it. And please know it was a Freudian slip. Okay. Please understand. That was amazing. Black flag singer Keith Morris. The band claims they saw him in a gas station and cornered him. This band loves cornering people, begging him to be on the album. So he was on it. Uh, The album is also a concept album, which is very on brand. Um, From Wiki, quote, it's a story of a man and a woman who are separated by death in a gun in a gunfight. And he goes to hell to realize um, by the devil telling him that she's still alive. Devil says he can be with her again if he brings the devil souls of a thousand evil men and the man agrees to it. So the devil hands him a gun. So that's that's the main overarching theme. But there are other songs that kind of round it out. Um, songs like Helena, which is actually about remorse and self-hatred that Gerard was experiencing because due to touring, he missed the last year of his grandmother's life. And she was really important to them. That's the one that encouraged them in that path. Um, the best song on the album, in my opinion, and I stake my claim on that, I'm not okay, I promise. I'm not okay. I'm not uh, Gerard yeah. said, okay. Um, Gerard said that was a cry for help, trapped in a pop song. Every time I hear that song, I picture the seagull screaming meme where it's, I'm not okay. The red eyes. Yes. <laughs> as far as for album sales, um, the album was released June 8th, 2004. When it was first released, it sold 11,000 copies, which it outsold in a week what the album, its first album did in a year. To date, it has sold 3 million copies. I'm sure it has. Um, but Warner knew by looking at the 11,000 number was like, uh, there's something going on here. Even though it's not a big number, they know trends. They know numbers. So the record label does something that's really fucking smart for the time. Something we do every day as marketers, but was not really being done then. Because there's no algorithms like we have now. And... Everything was mostly based off of record sales until the 2000s come around. And then it becomes about digital stream. Well, not streams, downloads. And whenever a single was chosen back in the day, it was like whatever the top execs decide to do. So here's the thing. MySpace and LimeWire exist now. God bless LimeWire. Like I said, this band is kind of an internet band. That's kind of how they started rising to fame. And so what they did was they gave MySpace and other websites like Pure Volume and Absolute Punk, where all the scene kids were, they gave those websites exclusive tracks. Mm. And then they watched the numbers. And they tracked the engagement and saw that Helena was getting the most plays. So that became the next single. And by the end of the summer, that was a smash hit, the home run, the pass go. Like, it was that big of a song. Let's talk about tour life during 2004, 2005. Because we have some awesome tours happening. We got Warp Tour, of course. And then we got Taste of Chaos, which was created by the guy from Warp Tour, Kenny Lyman. Um, instead of it being, like, outside, this was an inside venue, had more hardcore bass bands. Um, I'm really just talking about it because I have such fond memories of watching my brother go to the store without taking me. <laughs> but anyway, um, least to say, Mike Hem was busy and they were starting to skyrocket in popularity. Their last tour that they did for their first album, maybe 200 venues. Now it's 2000 cap venues. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sadly, unfortunately, there's a theme because touring can take a very big mental chunk out of you. But this was a different kind of mental strain than what had been before. Like along with the grunt of tour life, um, what used to be like the bombardment of groupies and dudes who wanted to do cocaine with you, uh, Gerard is having people left and right come to him and say, you saved my life, which is a nice sentiment for sure. But constantly hearing the details of it, like of suicide and self-harm, like if you're not a licensed counselor... That's going to take quite a toll on you. So then comes in drugs and alcohol. Um, Not really like heavy drug wise, like mostly pot, which is good. Um, But drinking wise, Gerard used to drink as a way to get himself into that chaotic state that he was on stage. And then he usually would come off stage and be that shy guy again. But 
the two started to blend. They started to blur. And he was just not in a good mental state, like always constantly throwing up from drinking, falling over, losing his pants, like (laughs) all sorts of things. And his hygiene really took a hit as well, which can happen with depression a lot. Like you just don't really see a point to do anything. And it got to a point where they were going to play Jaban and Gerard packed light because he was certain he wasn't going to come home back. Oh, shit. Like that is how bad his mental health was. Uh, but I think something that was a bit of a saving grace is he sought help out from other musicians who were able to encourage him. Like he talked to Billy Joel Armstrong from Green Day who encouraged him to like, it's okay to be a rock star. Like it's okay to embrace your sides. And he was just talking to people that just kind of help him see perspectives. And I think that got better as time went on. Um, The band also came into money for the first time, which I have a great story about, of course. Let's turn to page 293, shall we? So quote, and this is coming from Sarah. When Mikey finally got a lot of money, he brought this, he bought this gigantic fucking house in Jersey. I remember teasing him and saying he was Tom Hanks and big. There were times where I'd show up and there would be someone else there. And I'd be like, who the fuck is this? And they'd be like, oh, that's Randall. Mikey met him on World of Warcraft. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love that story because literally he's just meeting people online, not telling them who he is. And he's like, yeah, come to my house and it's Mikey Way from <laughs> Chemical Imagine Rise. being that person that got invited. That'd be so weird. Oh, man. I love it, though. All right. Let's talk about the album the rest of you have been waiting to talk about. So <laughs> Leah's like, fucking finally. Finally. Um, that's why I showed up today. <laughs> the, that's slightly not a lie. Um, so after the success of Three Cheers, the band started working on another concept album. Before the band cited that they felt like they didn't really fit in a specific genre, well, this album, yeah, they continued that con- that strife away from that sentiment. But they built their own breed. This is when they start embracing and building a new genre altogether. Well, subgenre, I should say. Uh, the concept of this album is about a man with cancer that is guided into the afterlife in the form of a marching band, the Black Parade. Each song from there encapsulates him looking back throughout his life. For this project, they recruited Rob Cavallo, who had done some work with Green Day. Also new for this project, after being attempted in the band for a little bit, they welcome Bob Breyer into the full as a drummer um, I'm not going to talk a lot about the studio time for this album, mainly because there isn't a lot, but I'm instead going to talk about the cultural impact of this album because holy hell. <laughs> so in August 22nd of 2006 in London, the band scheduled to play a one-off show. Those tickets sold 15 minutes after being on sale. They were just gone. As the audience is getting ready for the show to start, an announcement comes over the speakers that My Chemical Romance had to cancel and instead, a band called the Black Parade would be playing. Can, I Dude. cannot imagine the fucking chaos. The, 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 uh, according to Wiki, there was some hostility in the crowd. Can you? I imagine? don't think it was just hostility. I would be pissed if oh, I. Oh, I'd be pissed. Didn't know what was Who happening. Who the fuck is Black Parade? So here they all come out though. Gerard with and his like, blonde wait, hair. Wait a minute! Like I know that guy. <laughs> and their uh, Sergeant Pepper like outfits. But excellent marketing. You have to say that is some excellent what marketing. a time to be alive um their first single welcome to the black parade was released september 11th 2006 um it would reach number nine on the billboard 100 the album itself was released october 23rd 2006 this album would go triple platinum and reach number two on the billboard 100 what had the number one spot hannah montana fuck yeah <laughs> that's what i was listening to because some of us weren't allowed to listen to the black parade ah you missed a time but I, I did have a friend in this would have been seventh grade. Her name was Kimber, diehard MCR fan who let me listen on her her That's Walkman. A very good friend. That she literally only had that CD in there for the entire year that I hung out with her. Never listened to anything else. I love that. Wore a black parade jacket almost every single day. Her entire locker was pictures. Oh my god! From I know that girl. Like I know <laughs> that we had you can one picture of those. Her. We had one of the and the jacket too. The jacket was an iconic piece of yeah, merch. No, it absolutely was. Um, its biggest hits from this album include include Welcome to the Black Parade, Teenagers, Mama, I Don't Love You, 
without being too hyperbolic, I think the impact slash ripples of this album and its visuals can still be felt today. Like at the time, this was huge. Like Leah was saying, the merch was on a whole other level. If you were frequenting Hot Topic in 2006. That's all you could buy. That, that's it. You had MCR Black Parade merch and maybe in the small corner there was an Iron Maiden shirt. Maybe. Um, but today I see that influence like retranslated in different artists and artistic movements. Like from fashion, when we went to the Mike Hem show in July... How many people were dressed? Emo fashion is alive and well. Yeah. How many people were dressed like that? Like, like, so I don't know where they would have gotten those jackets now. Literally like the, the emo aesthetic that we had in high school was alive and well. So it was really cool to see that. So preserved. Um, and the music itself, like the dramatic elements, they include the type of sounds, the the synth sounds they had, like the type of, drumming patterns, all that kind of stuff you hear in today's music, especially a lot in the pop punk Mm -hmm. area of things. Um, So it's still like there, very prevalent. Since this album was released, they also released a hella different box sets and remixes and all that fun shit. Tons. Merchandising. I don't have time to talk about it. Just know that pretty much from the get-go, Warner's was like, there's money here in this oil well. And they just pretty much gouged it for all they could, including up till 2016, where they released a 10-year anniversary edition. This is the last little bit I'm going to lightly touch on for time's sake. In 2009, the band gears up for their fourth album called Danger Days, The True Lives of the Fabulous Killjoys, off the cuff, off the bat. I don't really care for this album. It's fine. It's fine. It was successful in that the band's goal was to create a stripped-down rock album mission accomplished but one thing i find hilarious is in the press junket for the upcoming album gerard said that would be less theatrical and quote it's not going to be uh going behind a veil of fiction or uniforms or makeup anymore the recent tour he dresses the bat a nurse a dictator bat gerard (laughs) cheerleader i just love it because the vampire at the pool or the pool boy at the vampire mansion look i get you want to do something different i respect that but there's an element of drama that must be attached to My Chemical Romance. I'm sorry. We cannot divorce it. We cannot. They're theater kids at heart. They really fucking are. Um, but the band was also growing tired of like a dark storyline. So they wanted something that was a little bit more, you know, jumpy, poppy. I don't blame them. Uh, yeah. Especially for touring that for two years. I can imagine. Touring an album about cancer. Yeah. For it, two years. It's pretty heavy. Um, so this was also a rock opera. A post-apocalyptic California and a bunch of rebels fighting corporate America. As far as for recording of this album, all I can offer is like the first round of recordings. The band was happy about it, so they pretty much shelved it. The album dropped on November 22nd, 2010. Did pretty good on the alternative rock charts and rose to number eight. However, during the release of this album, and I think a little bit before, we see the departure of drummer Bob Breyer. Um, he went on to do some great things, though, because he would auction off some of his MCR gear for dog rescue charities, especially <laughs> around Hurricane Ian. Good dude. That's cute. Good dude. The next drummer they hired, not a great dude, because he only lasted for a couple months for stealing from the band, and he got caught. Fuck that guy. Yeah. I don't know what he was stealing, but he's out. Uh, so from then on, it was just touring drummers. Like I said, the band's not really known for their drummer. They're not really there that much. As far as the band's last album, uh, they went into the studio in 2012. I don't think they really did much because this was a compilation album featuring unreleased songs. And it also could be because of March 22nd, 2013, the band breaks up. Womp womp. Um, but we know this is not the end of the story. Throughout most of the 2010s, everyone in the band pretty much is vibing, doing their own projects. Gerard is like making sick content like the Umbrella Academy. Um, just casually, you know, creating a Netflix casually, show. Casually, man. He's just literally like, he's just like, cool, I'm going to go do the art shit now that I was going to do. <laughs> no longer fuck art. Yeah. Um, however, in 2019, things start getting a little interesting. On October 31st, 2019, the band reveals they're uniting in LA for a one-off show. <laughs> Uh, the, the chaos that ensued how many minutes do you think those tickets sold out 
I don't think it made it to a minute. I remember the, the literal bloodbath. Four minutes. That and was it. That was just because Ticketmaster wouldn't load. Yes. Then after that show, a couple more shows get announced. I remember this too. Yeah, I remember because um, what's we his all face knew had a ticket. It was coming. Who had a ticket? What the dude from the Dundies, the blonde one, the drummer? Okay, I don't, I don't remember. Ryan? Um, yeah. Ryan. Okay. And then a couple more shows get announced. This goes all the way to January 2020, where they finally announce an American tour with tickets going on sale. January 30th, 2020. We know that tour didn't happen until 2022. But their first song since 2014 releases called Foundations of Decay. On like a random fucking Wednesday at 6 p.m. But wasn't it the first day of the tour they were about to start their tour? It was, I think, like the night before. The night before. But it came out of literal nowhere. (laughs) So here's the deal, folks. Mike Hem is finishing their tour on March 26th in Osaka, Japan. My theory, the album drops the next day. Or that day. Like many are not hopeful that there's going to be an album coming. But I still believe. I still believe the album's coming. I just don't think they're telling us about it. Because that song randomly dropped. That was such a random day. Either we're getting another single or we're getting the album. It's going to shadow drop. I literally put my phone down to make dinner. And I came back and I had like 72 texts from a group message. And I was like, what happened? (laughs) But I love this band. This band is part of my existence as a as a music nerd and that's where i want to end it i want the new album damn it that's it (laughs) that's my reflection and now that i'm done talking and apparently being tongue-tied which you are not going to hear because i've edited them by now but just know i fucked up a lot and i only had one sip of moonshine and now it's my time to stop talking and i'm going to drink that moonshine Thanks for listening. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Good Pods. Special thanks of Death of Fawn. It's passed on, hasn't it? Special thanks to Death of Fawn for our intro riff. You can visit our website, shiwaraki.com. There you'll find links to socials, show notes, ways to contact us, and links to buy merch. And remember, don't do drugs. Don't do drugs.